Good morning, church. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you're a guest, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. We're always excited to have guests with us. Let us know how we can assist you, how we can help you. If you're looking for a church, we'd love for you to plug in with us here at FBC Thibodeau. Um, And members, just know we are praying for you guys as you're going through the difficulties of life, trials and tribulations, uh, hardship. Um, uh, as, as a mother, as, as a father, as a wife, as a student, um, we know that we go through difficult times. And uh, I love Scripture because Scripture calls for us to be together as a unit. And this is where you get encouragement. The church is like a mother who nourishes her children, who protects her children. So we are thankful for the local church where we can get the Word of God, um, the presence of God, as God leads us, okay? So with that said, um, do not forget to sign up to, for the parenting uh, seminar that we, we will be having on the 22nd and the 23rd of October. Dr. Don Roy will be with us. Uh, so please come, even if you have no children, uh, if you're engaged or you're dating somebody and you want to be a mom or a dad later on in life, show up, be a part of this. Um, it will be a great opportunity for you to learn how to be a parent, a good godly parent. So I'm pretty excited about this um, because I have a lot of learning to do. So um, so please come be a part of this. With that said, we are in the book of Hebrews. We are walking through the book of Hebrews, and we are in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. And when you've arrived to the text, say word, word. Can you please stand? We stand out of reverence to God's holy and righteous word. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. But you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." Let's pray together. This is the word of our God. Lord Jesus, be with us as we are seeking to understand your will for our lives. We know that the Bible is the autobiography of God. It informs us of our God. The Bible is specific revelation. It tells us who God is, who Jesus is. It tells us of the attributes of Jesus. Nature doesn't tell us that God is holy and righteous and loving and kind and good. The scripture tells us. Nature doesn't tell us how we can come to know this God. The Bible tells us. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can have eternal life. So with that said, God, as we are opening your holy word, this is not just a book that we put on a shelf, or like a telephone book that we pull out to get information. No, this is life. So I pray, God, because of the intensity and urgency that your word teaches, that we are attentive. We are ready and prepared to receive from a holy God who will speak to us. These are not just ancient words written on paper. No, this is the living word of God, active. It moves. It transforms lives. So for that, teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not and give us what we do not have. We ask all of this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. The title for today's sermon is Finishing the Race of the Christian Faith. What if God were to say to you that today will be your last day on earth? Your last day on earth. What would be your last will and testament? Have you ever thought of that? What would be your last will and testament? 
I can tell you exactly Paul's last will and testament. It is recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Timothy, writing to his son Timothy in the faith, and you can sense the intensity in this book. It was Paul's last letter. As a matter of fact, according to history or historians, the Apostle Paul was beheaded two months after he wrote the book of 2 Timothy. But notice his last will and testament. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, Paul is saying, I am about to die. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. I am about to die. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will give to me on that day. But not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. What a powerful passage of scripture that we have before us. The Apostle Paul's mindset was, it was changed and transformed by the gospel. The Apostle Paul viewed life as this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the Apostle Paul ran the Christian race with great intensity. No drooping hands, or wobbling feet, or sagging faces. No, the Apostle Paul was intense in running the Christian race. And he's saying the same thing to us. To run, to fight, to finish. Maybe this morning you're here and you're discouraged in this Christian race. You're saying, man, I look around me and I see nothing but chaos. I'm discouraged with my family. I'm discouraged with my health. I'm discouraged with my finances and discouraged at work. I'm just consistently discouraged. And maybe you're saying, what's the point of this Christian race? And listen, I want you to get this and come in closer and get this. The way that we run this Christian race is by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17, the author here, the author of Hebrews, encourages readers to finish the race well. This is what we need to hear, finish the race well. But do you notice the word therefore, the conjunction therefore in verse 12? The therefore is for a very important reason. As a matter of fact, the, the, the author of Hebrews is saying to us, in view of God's discipline, therefore, run the race well. In view of God's discipline, do, do not have drooping hands or wobbling feet, but run the race well. You, you see, a lot of times for us, when we observe the discipline of God, sometimes there's a sense of discouragement. And above, he, told, he says to us, do not be discouraged by God's discipline. As a matter of fact, do not be discouraged by trials and temptation and, and all of these things coming your way. Because God is sovereign. God's discipline is not meant to discourage us, but to encourage us. God disciplines us because we are his children. And God disciplines us not because he is displeased with us, but rather because he loves us. You get it. This is what the author of Hebrews has been saying thus far. And here specifically, he encourages the readers and he encourages you to continue. Do not be discouraged. And the author of Hebrews operate kind of like a coach here. He gives a charge, and then he also gives a challenge. And these are our two points this morning. First, he gives a charge. And what is the charge? To keep on running. As believers, we cannot stop. We are in this marathon, and we are called to keep on running. So this is the charge that he gives us, and we see it in verses 12 through 13. 
Then secondly, he gives us a challenge. What is the challenge here? To live holy lives. Live holy. And we see this in verses 14 through 17. Again, brothers and sisters, I, I think it's important that you get this. And I, I try my best almost every Sunday morning to, to kind of prepare and encourage you to encounter God in such an amazing way. But there, there are many distractions, right? Many distractions. Uh, 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 someone told me this morning, the Saints game, you know. Uh, so, so here's a Saints game that's coming up. But listen, the Saints game can be a distraction for you this morning as well. Uh, we are the Saints, so pay attention to the Word of God, right? Maybe, maybe you're thinking about the Saints. Listen, these Saints are not good. <laughs> Drew Brees is not there. You're wasting your time. Don't watch it. It's only going to discourage you. That's why I stopped watching the Saints game. But I am extremely encouraged with the people of God. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're thinking about the food that you will eat. Maybe you're thinking about something else that might distract you. Listen, this is important here. You made it this morning. Make much of this time. Hold on to God and allow the Spirit of God to speak to your hearts. You will rest when you go home, I promise you. You will be okay. But you need your medication this morning. You need your medication. And the doctor has prescribed your medicine, and it's the Word of God. So take, enjoy. Take the Word of God, enjoy it. So do not be distracted. So, so point number one here is the charge. Keep on running. Keep on running. The author continues with his race metaphor. So he's been using it since verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12. He says to run the race. So there is, there is this race metaphor that he uses, and, and he, he, he says to us, he connects it with the Christian race. He says, think about a marathon. And those who run a marathon, right? They endure. They, they run. Their lungs hurt. Their feet hurt. In the same way, the Christian life is the same. It is like a marathon. But here, he gives two factors that are important for us to keep on running. In other words, he's saying, I'm saying to you that you need to keep on running, but here are two points that you must get to help you to keep on running. The first point here is that he says to us that we must toughen up. <laughs> Stop complaining. Stop whining. Toughen up. Build callus on your spiritual feet. Get your lungs to work well. <laughs> In other words, he's saying to us, toughen up. Up And we see this in verse 12. Well, where do you get this from, Kevin? Notice very carefully in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight path for your feet. These terminologies were used to describe a person who is in a race, and he's extremely tired. So the first thing that happens to a marathon runner or anyone who runs a race for a long time, and one of the key or main factors of knowing that they're tired is that they begin to drop their hands, right? Like this. By dropping their hands, it shows specifically that they are tired. Drooping hands prevents them from running as fast as they should. So any sprinter or runner, he's like this. When you drop your hands, it shows that you are tired. Then he talks about weak knees. This is another thing that we notice. Your knees begin to wobble. It's an indication that you are tired. These are signs of proverbial in the Bible culture of mental and spiritual slowdown. So, so maybe you have drooping hands and wobbling knees this morning. 
Because spiritually, you feel exhausted. And this is what the author of Hebrews was dealing with, with his readers. But the author of Hebrews was thinking about Isaiah. You see here, Isaiah was dealing with the same thing with the people that were being discouraged because of persecution, because the enemies were defeating them, because of, 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 of trouble, contention within the Israelites, because people were forsaking God. And Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 4. Come in closer and get this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What a great passage of scripture. And the author of Hebrews is thinking about this. When you think about the word that he mentions here, and it's a word to strengthen, is where we get our English word orthopedic from. It basically means to align straight, to make straight, to make upright. In other words, the author is saying, straighten up. Notice what God is doing. Do not allow the discipline of God to discourage you. Make sure there is callous under your spiritual feet. And do not stop. Keep on running. This is hard sometimes to understand because is the author saying to us here, is he promoting a sense of bootstrap Christian life, a Christian living? Just forget everything and just go? Is he promoting kind of like the Nike slogan, just do it? No. What he's saying to us is that we must keep our eyes on Jesus. Do not take your eyes off of Jesus. The moment we take our eyes off of Jesus, then what happens? Our hands drop. Our knees wobble. This is his point here. John MacArthur helps us here by stating, coming closer and listen to this. When we experience spiritual hands that are weak and knees that are feeble, our only hope is in fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So the first thing we're called to do because of this great charge the first thing we're called to do is to toughen up. And the way we're toughen up is by looking to Jesus, not taking our eyes off of Jesus. The second way that we do this is that we run with others. Do you see in your own Bibles here? In verse 13, the author wants us to see. Look in your own Bibles and see for yourself. In verse 13 of chapter 12. And make straight path for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So, sometimes with Scripture, it's very difficult to understand what's going on, right? Primarily because Scripture was written to a particular audience and culture. So you have the, the Old Testament written uh, to the, the, the Jews, and then you have the New Testament written to the Greeks and Romans and, and the Gentiles. And you're looking at two different cultures, and here's our culture, and we bring all kinds of presuppositions in trying to interpret Scripture, and we, we find ourselves with particular passages of Scripture we struggle tremendously with. But what helps tremendously are word studies. And this is why I love Scripture. When we understand the original meaning of a Hebrew word or a Greek word, it paints a beautiful picture for us that maybe English words might not. For example, the word path here was used to describe someone who's traveling with chariots and carts, and that chariot and cart creates a pathway and later on, what would happen, because the chariot and, pa uh, and cart created this pathway, P 
people are able to walk on this pathway. This is what the text is alluding to. It's alluding to the fact that as Christians, we do not run by ourselves. We are called to create paths for other Christians. We are called to have examples and live a godly example for other Christians. I remember in St. Lucia, as we go in the forest, my grandfather bought this property of land and he cleared out the little forest area. And every single morning, five o'clock in the morning, my grandfather would go and work in the forest in this little plantation. And he would use his machete and cut limbs and cut trees. And month after month after month, by him walking and clearing out trees, with his hand, with his machete, there was a path that we can pass. My grandfather created a path for us. So when we cultivated bananas, and we put it in the box, and we put it in our head, like we're not walking through like thick terrain. No, my grandfather created this path for us. As a young boy, I didn't fully understand it, but now I do. Thank you, Grandpa. I didn't have these things just sticking out and grabbing me. No, you created a path. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's saying for us as Christians, we need to create a path for other Christians. For your children. For others in the church sitting right next to you. We need to have a godly example. A godly example. You're not in this race by yourself. Individualism is killing our nation, our Western civilization. A lot of people are very individualistic. It's about me. They, they use phrases such as, you're on your own, to each his own. I got this by myself. How many times have we heard phrases like this? Because we live in a culture that is very individualistic. But when it comes to Christianity, it's not just about you. It's about the other Christians around you. And the way that you run this Christian race, it's not about you being all the way in the front by yourself. No, the way you run this Christian race is by grabbing other Christians to run with you. It's not going to the finishing line and looking back and saying, oh God, they're so slow. Look at me. <laughs> Take a picture. <laughs> no. We run this race together. I was watching the news and um, there was a story about two teammates running cross, cross country in Alaska. It's Division II State Boy Cross Country Championship. And these two boys were from this school called Grace Christian School. And they ran the entire race together. But right before, inches before one of the boys got to the finishing line, he collapsed and he fell. Do you think the other teammate just, you would think he would just run and say, hey man, my time is very important, so I'll just go ahead and finish. No, he didn't do that. He looked back, and I think I have a picture of it. He looked back, saw his teammate, grabbed him, and literally dragged him across the finishing line. <laughs> he stated, in the moment, I didn't have time to think about rules or whatever. I just helped him up. Well, more dragged him across the finishing line. And that's literally what he did. He dragged his teammate across the finishing line. What a great picture of what we ought to do as Christians. It's not about you being individualistic. No, it's about you looking at other Christians and saying, how can I help you? I see you're struggling. How can I pray for you? We're in this race together. This scripture is filled with commands of how we ought to do this. As a matter of fact, when you, when you look at the very passage of scripture, he talks about the lame, and the lame are the, the weak Christians here, the ones who are struggling. 
The joints must be put back together. They must be healed. And, and, and what the author of Hebrews is doing here, he's still using the race metaphor. And he's saying for us as Christians, as we're running, we ought to help those who are weak. The strong must help the weak. The weak must help the weak. We are in this together. We're in this together. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 11 mentions, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We're going to do this together. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 11 and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are called to assist and help one another. So, friends, coming closer, coming closer, coming closer. I'm, not, I'm, I'm reminded, uh, this is just a side note, very brief. I preach at home a Christian uh, on Friday, and I think there were about 450 students, and uh, in the front row were just the college, uh, uh, football team. And every time I would say coming closer, the football team would literally grab the chair and pull themselves up like this. After the third time, I mean, I was so freaked out by it. I was like, whoa, what's, what's happening, right? So I turned and I looked at them. I was like, look, all the time of me preaching, I've never seen that happen before. They, they were literally grabbing the chair and pulling themselves forward to listen. I really thought Stephen Scrivener probably said something to them because he wanted to concoct some plan of, well, every time I say coming closer, he wanted y'all to move a pew ahead. Um, but, but nevertheless, uh, like I said, it's a side note. Sorry about that. But anyway, here we notice something very important, right? And the point here is to run the race, to keep the faith, to trust in Jesus. So your drooping hands, your wobbling knees, your face that is sagging, turn to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Finally and secondly, the two points this morning, the challenge. So he gives a charge. What is the charge? What is the charge that we have? Keep on running. How do we keep on running? Toughen up. How do we keep on running? Run with others. And here he says, he gives us a challenge to live holy lives. So holiness is an attribute of God. It's God's attribute. God is holy. God is different than any other being that you've ever met on this planet, in this world. He is set apart. He is perfect. But here's the deal. We as Christians are called to be holy as well. How can this be? Notice very carefully what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16 says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. As children of God, we are characterized as obedient children. We're characterized as holy people. So here, the text is alluding to two sense of holiness that work together. Positional holiness. Positional holiness is when God saves you and he deposits the holiness of Christ, his holiness, in you. So you are set apart to be holy. Practical holiness is we as Christians saying, because of what's been deposited in me, I must withdraw it. And the way that I withdraw God's holiness in me is through obedience, that I obey his will. And when you think about holiness, we must think about holiness in two different ways. 
things that we embrace and we pursue and things that we avoid. You see, holiness is not just avoiding certain things and that's it. No, you must pursue something. Holiness is not just pursuing something. No, you must also avoid certain things. And here specifically, the author tells us of three things that we must pursue in our holiness and two things that we must avoid and resist in our holiness. What are the things that we must pursue? Well, he says it. Read in your own Bible. See for yourself. In verse 14, first, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will be able to see the Lord. First, we are called to pursue peace. The word pursue here is a very aggressive word in the original language. As a matter of fact, that word was used when someone would pursue their enemies. It's aggressive. So as we see the Israelites, they would pursue their enemies to the point of killing their enemies. There is a sense of urgency. But this is not used in a negative connotation. It's used in a positive connotation. In other words, the author is saying to pursue peace. It must be who we are. It must be the very thing that we're thinking about on a consistent basis as a Christian. But notice he's not saying that we will achieve peace. But rather, he says, to pursue peace. It doesn't mean that every situation in your life and relationship in your life, there will be peace. For example, there are people who just do not like you because you're a Christian. And you try your best to be nice to them. And they just absolutely hate you. There are family members that just can't stand you because of who you are in Christ. And you're nice to them, and there's nothing you can do. So here he's not saying to achieve peace with everyone, but to pursue peace with everyone. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says it this way. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. One of my favorite movies is Lord of the Ring. And in the book... He shares specifically about God-fearing elves and God-fearing dwarves. And they came together to fight against the dark Lord. But as they came together, there was dissension. They started calling down plagues on each other, curses on each other. And one of the wise elves, Heldor of Lauren, remarked, Indeed, And nothing is the power of the dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all who still oppose him. What great truth is the same thing that happens in the church. When there is great dissension among Christians, Satan is happy. Satan is pleased, but God is not pleased. Friends, come in closer and don't miss this. One of the most deadly weapons to discourage other Christians from running the race effectively is dissension within the church. Do you get this? When the church is dirty and nasty, when the church gossips, when the church has no love at all, When the church is very judgmental, but not enduring. It's one of the tools that Satan uses to discourage others from running the race effectively. Conflict in the church brings glory to Satan and disgrace to our God. You get it. Our lives, our purpose in life is to glorify God. It's to glorify God. But when there is conflict in the church, it doesn't glorify God. It glorifies our enemy, Satan. 
So we turn from such conflict as quickly as possible. And we go to a brother and we say sorry when we must. I didn't grow up with my biological father. My mother, by the age of two, married my stepdad. And by the age of eight, ten years old, they moved to the U.S., raised by my grandparents. I've shared the story multiple times. But here's the point. My biological father and I never really have a good, had a good relationship. Yeah, he would send money, buy stuff, school stuff. When I got a little older, married, my biological father called me and started talking about my mother. My mother whom I love dearly. He said, well, she is this and she is that. And, and I got so angry. I was a Christian. And I was like, dude, don't you ever talk about my mom this way. Who do you think you are? He was shocked. Hammed the phone, did not talk to each other for two years. Going to seminary, and the Lord was convicting my heart. This is the very passage of Scripture that God used to convict my heart. It's up to you, Kevin, to call and to find peace here. It makes no sense. For you to have any animosity towards this man. No sense. It's hurting you. And maybe there are some of you in this room right now that there is a sense of animosity and conflict. And, and, and you, you are a kind of person that like to hold things in. And you're like, man, I can't stand this one. And you think it's okay, but it's not okay if you're a Christian. It is not. Live at peace. Pursue peace. It's incredible when I watch uh, uh, court cases and I, I see people who have murdered multiple people and, and you have the family who are coming and the family are talking and the family is saying this and they said, I have forgiven you and the world just cannot comprehend this. Why? Why would you forgive this murderer? You're not forgiven for his sake. Primarily, you're forgiven for your sake. This murderer is sleeping well at night. You are not. Because there is conflict within you. This is what we must learn to do as Christians. So we pursue peace. Then he says to pursue holiness. This is practical holiness. We pursue what is right. We turn away from what is false and what is wicked, and what is immoral. The problem with so many Christians today is that we have no conviction. Everything is okay. But we should not be this way. We must be different than the world. And what hurts God hurts us. What makes much of God we pursue. We pursue holiness. And third thing that we must pursue, we must pursue watching over each other. Oh, I love this one. I love this one. Do you, do you see it in your own Bibles? Notice very carefully what he mentions here. Notice very carefully. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one can see God. Practical. He's talking about, he's talking about those who are saved, right? But we ought to live this life as well by, by pursuing God, by being obedient to God. We know one thing, God reveals himself to us in so amazing ways, right? He does see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The word see here is the word episkopos, where we get the word episkopos from. This is where we get the word bishop or overseer from. In other words, he's saying that every Christian, in a general sense, is an overseer. <laughs> and what does he oversee? He and she must oversee or have oversight of other Christians. That, that we are intimately involved with each other. That when I see a brother and a sister not doing well spiritually, my oversight must 
come to that Christian, love this Christian, pray for this Christian. This is the command here, that we pursue watching over each other. And he tells us exactly what happens here. As some fall from grace. What does he mean by gracelessness here? He, he's not talking about evangelistic grace, right? So, so we say that grace is what leads someone to Christ. He, he, he's talking about a sense of sanctification. He's talking about Christians here. And the gracelessness that he's talking about is the practical living in our, in our, in our lives, right? So let me give you a perfect example of this. When a Christian is in habitual sin and he doesn't confess, there is a sense of gracelessness in his life. What do you mean by this, Kevin? Well, it's not that God doesn't give grace to him. Because we know according to scripture, the greater the sin, the more grace. God's grace is new every morning. His mercy is new every morning. This is not based on God. View grace as a cup that's being poured down on your head, but it never ends. But view gracelessness as an umbrella that you open up to prevent that grace from falling down on you. This is what he means by gracelessness here. We fall from grace several ways that we do this. By one, not repenting when we should. Enjoying our sins. Unconfessed sins. Two, not spending time in the word of God. You see, by us having a quiet time, a daily quiet time, and spending time with God, we are more acquainted with God, right? We get to understand him even better. Why? Because scripture is an autobiography of God. So when a Christian is not spending time eating and drinking the word of God, he is malnourished. You get it. So we find ourselves struggling with gracelessness when we don't spend time in the word of God. And here's another way that we struggle with gracelessness. By abstaining from the fellowship of the church. <laughs> By thinking everything else in your life is more important than coming together and worshiping God. Christians who continue to do this, I don't care what podcast you listen to. I don't care if you're listening to Vody Bakum or John Piper or John MacArthur. I, I don't care. I don't care what you do by yourself. The church is very important. And we are given a command in the book of Hebrews to not neglect the fellowship of believers. So I'll go as far as saying this to you because this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. When you are consistently neglecting the fellowship of believers, it's sin. So here are three ways that we find ourselves falling short of grace. We must turn away from this. Kent Hughes mentioned the movement of divine grace through Christ's body, which is the church, is meant to be a corporate experience. Not individualistic, but a corporate experience. What great truth that we have here. But notice the next thing he mentions here, not just conflict, right? So, so we pursue believers, we give oversight so that they won't fall into the sense of gracelessness, put an umbrella, a spiritual umbrella over their heads, where they're not seeing the grace that they should see because God is constantly pulling grace. This is not God to be blamed, but us, our actions. But also here, we give oversight so that Christian won't fall into bitterness. Do you see in your own Bibles? See, see what he says. See to it that you, or that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. No one in their right mind says, well, today I'm going to be bitter. <laughs> no. No, you, you don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm just going to be bitter. No. You know what happened? It festers. 
You wake up in the morning, you come to church, and someone says something to you that you're really upset about. Just, just, just really got you, and you're upset. I'm like, huh, this person is a Christian. Why is this person saying this to me? Then it festers. It's brewing, and it's brewing. And next Sunday, you come, and you see this person, and the person says hello to you, and you say, oh, you hate me. <laughs> then Wednesday, you come, and you see the person, and the person didn't smile at you. Oh, that person definitely hates me. And therefore, there is bitterness in your heart. That's brewing. You start gossiping about this person. And every time that person's name is mentioned, you can tell the, 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 the pus that is coming out of your heart because of bitterness. We as Christians must guard against that and give oversight. So for those of you, for us, who are entertaining any kind of bitterness, we are hurting our brother and sister rather than helping them. So what we do in the way we give oversight, if this person has a major issue with this other brother, we sit down and we ask, well, brother, maybe there's another point to this. Oh, brother, if you really feel hurt by this brother or sister, maybe you need to go talk to them. Maybe you need to sit down and let them know exactly how you feel. Luke Sedatal walks us through uh, church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. If a brother sins against you, what must you do? You must go to them privately, right? Jesus tells us exactly how we can protect our hearts. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, if someone has done something to you or you have anger toward your brother, leave your gift at the altar, then go repent to your brother and come back and worship. Well, you know what Jesus is saying here? That your bitterness is hindering you from worshiping God. That's why we don't sit in the pews and hallelujah, praise the Lord, God, you're good, all of these things. And there's a lot of bitterness in our hearts. The way that we worship is by going and repenting and fixing that problem. So we turn away from this. So let's move on. Let's move on. And there are two other things that we must turn away from, and they are appetites. And here he calls up Esau, just like he called up all of the others in Hebrews chapter 11 as an example. But Hebrews chapter 11, they were used as a positive example. But here Esau is used as a negative example. In other words, he's saying, don't be like Esau. And here are two reasons why you shouldn't be like Esau. One, because of his sexual appetite. In other words, Esau was a pervert. <laughs> Esau was sexually immoral. The account in the book of Hebrews, in, in the book of Genesis, Genesis 25, doesn't tell us much about Esau's immorality, sexual immorality. It alludes to some of it, to somewhat. It just says that, Esau married two Canaanite women, and those two women brought a lot of trouble to Esau's parents. But according to extra-biblical writings, rabbinic traditions, it tells us that Esau was a very sexual, immoral person. It says to us that he was impure, impulsive, an adulterer. This is how they described him in these books. Al Mola mentions here, sexual immorality not only violates the law of God, it also defiles our own bodies, which are temples of the Holy Spirit. So Esau, the red-haired brother, <laughs> that's what he means, Edom, Big red is what they call him. Loves fun, food, and females. That sounds kind of familiar, right? A lot of guys today. <laughs> fun, food, and females. There's a problem with that. Your sexual appetite is going to pull you away from seeing the beauties of God. The riches of God. So here... The author of Hebrews is saying, do not be like Esau with his sexual appetite. As a matter of fact, the word used sexual here is the word pornos, 
where we get the word pornography from. This is what he is describing, a wicked man who is very perverse. But not only that, we notice the sexual appetite, but also the physical appetite. And in Genesis chapter 25, it mentions that Enoch came from hunting. And as he came home, he saw Jacob. And Jacob had this pot of lentil stew. I love lentils, but I do not like lentil stew. But nevertheless, Esau did something crazy. As Jacob was cooking this lentil stew, Esau says to Jacob, give me something to eat. And Jacob says, well, you know what, buddy? I will give you something to eat, but let's trade I'll give you a bowl of stew, but you give me your birthright. The passage of scripture says to us that Esau said, oh, definitely, you can have my birthright. As a matter of fact, Moses says to us in Genesis chapter 25, verse 34, that Esau's actions show that he despised his birthright. In other words, His physical appetite showed that he was an immoral person. He didn't care about God's promises. He didn't care about what God was doing here. So two things that we notice, his sexual appetite and also his physical appetite. And as we close, oh friends, notice the last thing here. Notice the last thing here. I love this. As we close, see this for yourself. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance of repent, to repent, though he sought it with tears. The word repent here really describes more of remorse. There wasn't genuine repentance here, because we know that all those who genuinely repent, God will forgive. Repentance is a gift of God. But here, he's only crying. And we know of the story. He goes to his father and he says, Father, give me my birthright. I, I didn't understand what I was doing, but he knew exactly what he was doing. But he was crying because he, he wanted all of these things. But it wasn't true repentance. So friends, coming closer. There is a charge and a challenge in this Christian race. Coming closer, don't miss this. Here's the charge. Keep on running. Toughen up and run with others. Here's a challenge. Live holy lives. Pursue peace. Pursue holiness. Pursue watching over others. And resist and reject two appetites. Sexual appetite and physical appetite. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father. I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for your presence. And I just pray that you be with your people as we apply the word of God to our lives. Let us not just be entertained. Let us not forget your word. But let us live out your word. Be with us, O Lord. We're in desperate need of you. In your mighty and precious name. Amen.